Welcome. Thank you for joining me here today on the Final Draft Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel, and today I am joined on the show by Maxine Benaber-Clark. The Final Draft Podcast explores books, writing, and literary culture. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and at Final Draft we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing. We want to look into the issues that drive each author's storytelling as a way to help you discover more from the books you love, these incredible stories, stories that make us who we are. Now, 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and the treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. As I mentioned, I am joined on the show by Maxine Benaber-Clark. You have met Maxine before. She is an incredible poet. She writes widely. She writes well. She is also an incredible illustrator. And today she is joining us with a new book for children. So join me as we discover Maxine Benaber-Clark's We Know a Place. I'm welcoming back to the show Maxine Benaber-Clark. Maxine is prolific, the author of Foreign Soil, The Hate Race, Poetry Collections Carrying the World, and How Decent Folk Behave. But today we are talking to Maxine, the author of children's picture books, which include The Patchwork Bike and When We Say Black Lives Matter. Today she is joining us to discuss the absolutely joyful We Know a Place. Welcome, Maxine. I'm so excited. We're going to be talking about bookstores and reading. Thanks so much for having me. It's so great to be back on the show. This is like, this book is just about the joy of books. It's about the joy of reading and it's about the joys of wandering bookshop shelves in search of adventure. So this is a loaded question because I know so many so many authors have worked in bookstores just as a, a matter of the daily course you I do bookstore visits, but I wondered, can I ask what role have bookstores played in your life? Yeah. I mean, bookstores, I've never worked in a bookstore, um, but I've spent hours and hours in bookstores, both as a parent of children who find it very difficult to decide what kind of book they want. (laughs) So, you know, that thing of a parent of kind of going, you can get one book today and, you know, an hour and a half later, you're Mm. walking out of the store probably with two books. Um, I think in my young adult life, I was a secondhand bookstore frequenter. Mm. You know, when you're at university and you don't necessarily have the money for new books and you're also reading, um, and I was kind of trying to catch up on reading the classics. So secondhand bookstores was where I found mm. them. And so, yeah, that part of my life really was kind of looking for the classics in secondhand bookstores. And then I think as a writer, I love, I think bookstores have been instrumental to me as a writer in terms of promoting my work, obviously, but also finding out what my contemporaries and my colleagues are writing, what's come out recently. I remember when Foreign Soil came out, so many people said to me, I was in a bookstore and a bookseller came up to me and said, oh, have you heard about this book, Foreign Soil? (laughs) And that was really a key way that the message spread about my books. You know, my early adult works were not particularly commercial. Mm. And so it was really wandering into bookstores that people either saw them on the shelves or were told about them. So I think they've been part of my life both as a reader and as a writer in terms of, you know, telling people about my, my work. First, first little shout out then to the incredible booksellers that bring bookshops alive and all the books that they put into our hands that we might not otherwise discover. 
Oh, so many things I wanted to pick up on there. Uh, the the one that jumps out at me, you talked about like secondhand book shopping as a uni student and I was the same. And I feel like it's one of the one of the tragedies of growing up. Like I, I went to University of Sydney and so the bookshops that I attend I went to were in Newtown and so many of them are gone. Um, yeah. do you do you have a favorite bookstore? The one the one that um uh, Glee Books was is one that's you know obviously still there. But do you have a favorite bookstore that survived, like from your uni oh, days? Wow. wow, I mean, I went actually went to university in the University of Wollongong, and there was about three primary bookstores. I can't even remember the name, but there was one on Crown Street that was just this absolute treasure trove of books. I don't know; I haven't been to Wollongong for a decade, so I'm not sure if they still exist. Um, Wollongong term- fans, right in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to know. Um, in terms of my early, like as a kid, we didn't really have indie bookstores, independent bookstores. So it was Angus and Robinson and Dimex in the local mm. mall. Um, and they, you know, like they were great, but obviously didn't carry the range that a curated independent bookstore would carry. It was particularly in the 80s and 90s. I think now it's a little bit different. Um and so, yeah, but the the bookstores and then after university I moved to Newtown mm. and so um, Better Read Than Dead, of course, Gould's Book Arcade in Newtown that existed back then. Uh, um, only, only, we only lost it a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, Sa- not so long ago. Sappho, we should probably shout out to Sappho. Did you ever yeah, get down Sappho, there? Yeah, absolutely. Sappho, Glee Books, um, even Berkelo, Kinakunia. I mean, these aren't second secondhand mm. ones, you know, Kinakunia and, and – um, yeah, Berkelo, but but yeah, just I think the yeah the, the the thing that I loved about bookstores is both you know you'd go in there for something you wanted or you were looking for, and you'd inevitably come out with either something that was pitched to you or something that you stumbled upon. Um, and there's just quite a oh, just the wonder of a shop that only sells books. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's it's such a joy. Your your family or the, the family you create in We Know A Place, they make a weekly pilgrimage to their local bookstore. They do this on the weekend after completing their chores. Mm-hmm. I wondered, it felt so warm and personal. Was this ever a particular ritual for you? Definitely. I mean, the bookstore in the book, um, it's kind of a universal bookstore, but the facade of the building is based on the Younger Son bookstore in Yarraville. So it looks very similar. The building is the same colours and the same shapes. And I used to take my kids there. I mean, the kids in this book are quite privileged kids, you know, getting to go there every week. But for me, it was kind of as a single parent, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, um, once a month, maybe once a fortnight if my kids were lucky, and then in between we'd kind of go to Savers and get secondhand books. But this particular monthly or fortnightly trip to the local bookstore was a massive big deal. And my daughter was only a baby at the time, but my son was about five or six, and he was he was that kind of kid that um, would – take hours and hours and hours to choose one book, Mm. you know, I'd say, you know, you can get one, you know, very lucky too. And he'd kind of measure them up and ask the the booksellers, you know, what's in this one. And do you think I'd like this one better? And is this one more adventurous? And, and they would be tearing their hair out, but you know, this very (laughs) patient (laughs) channeled patience. Mm. And so it's based on that experience, I think of being a parent and just, 
the joy of seeing a child discover all of these worlds. Mm. I, I want to pick up on something. You, you sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier too, Maxine, and I, I don't know I don't know if this is a call out on you or anything, but you're telling this story about your kids, you know, just immersing themselves in the books in the bookstore, like you go into a bookstore and you're just, just like that one and you're in and out in five minutes. Now, I again, I don't know that I'm calling you out. I'm just suggesting that doesn't seem probable. <laughs> it is not probable, yes. Mm. I'm probably projecting just a little. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think what I really enjoy as well going into bookstores, particularly, you know, like readings bookstore, you know, Mm. which is quite a big store is watching the book buyers, Mm. you know, watching people pick things up and put them down and read the back and read the cover and that it's a ritual, Mm. you know, right. It's not just the ritual of, well, I need this particular book. So I'm going to go in there and buy it. There really is something about, browsing and deciding and oh maybe I'll leave this one till next week and and I think yeah that the wonder is not just in the reading it's mm. in that ritual of actually going and deciding so just a reflection for me but it always feels to me like the the trip is on par with the reading and whenever I'm at a bookstore I find myself like I get torn between I want to browse all the things that I don't have but then a little part of me is rushing wanting to rush home and just do some reading it's like, exactly. shop, like shopping when you're hungry? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I think there's a, I mean, read, but you know, you're, you're right, both the experience and the, the reading at home. And I think, you know, it's that old, you know, lament of it's such a busy world and we're constantly mm-hmm. rushing around and we never stop. And reading is a thing that cuts against that, actually sitting down and, and reading. It's a slow activity. Mm-hmm. And Browsing in the bookshop is the same. You know, you kind of don't go into a bookshop thinking, oh, I'll just be in and out and I'll be quick. You know, the minute you step in the door, it's like time slows down. Even, you lose time. Even when I go in with something in mind, like I've got to, got to say, find a, a research book for work and I know I'm going to, I, I only have to go to the counter. I know almost certainly they won't have it and they'll yeah. have to order yeah. it in for me. I, I browse and I just delay that moment where I've, have to go and talk yeah. to them because then I feel like, well, that's like my my reason to leave. And I'm like, not yet, yeah. not yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, it is, it is rare when I am discussing children's literature that I get the author and the illustrator together. And, of course, <laughs> I am I'm talking about you and your beautiful artwork. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about your style? Like what – it's so vibrant. It's so textural. Yeah, I, oh, there's a story behind these illustrations. So I illustrate with um, watercolour pencil on really textured cardstock. So, you know, the, the paper's almost pebbly. Yeah. So it kind of, you know, looks like it might be illustrated on material or something like that. You That's that what great. I thought. Yeah. And so it's kind of like I feel like I'm working against the AI grain. There's such a move in children's illustration mm. towards you know, you need them to look like Pixar animations Mm. in order to compete with movies and cartoons and and Bluey and all of those kinds of things. And so I feel very stubborn Mm. about style and that this has to be done, you know, by hand on paper, which of course is very laborious. Now I'm also a self-taught illustrator, so I don't have any formal art training. And what that partly means is, my illustration style is quite rapidly evolving. Mm. 
Uh-huh. You know, if you've been to art school and you spent years and years and years working out how you illustrate and then you become an illustrator, you kind of have a style locked down that might evolve, but you've done a lot of that evolution when you've been learning. And what happened with this book was it was illustrated years ago, about two years ago, and I'd written it and I pitched it to the publishers. And then I signed on to illustrate another book. It was a book called 11 Words for Love, written by Randa Abdel Fattah. And so it took me maybe a year and a bit to illustrate that. And the publisher said, we want to put that out first. It's a book that it's about Arabic words for love and it follows a young Palestinian family. So it was quite timely as well. Mm. And then that book got put out and they came back and said, okay, we're going to do Win Our Place now. And I opened this folder of illustrations and I looked at them and I thought, these are terrible. Like I just was absolutely mortified. And in the process of illustrating this other book through which I'd drawn things I'd never drawn before, you know, drawn the Dome of the Rock Mosque, you know, which is this elaborate ornate building with this gold dome. I'd suddenly become a much, I wouldn't say better illustrator, but my style had completely evolved. And when I looked at these illustrations, I just thought these, this is three books ago. Mm. And so I thought, can I still put this out? Like, am I going to be able to walk in a bookshop and look at the, so essentially I re-illustrated the entire book in about four to six weeks. So, <laughs> so, this, so sorry, I've, I've got it here. I'm staring at it. Dear listener, yeah. I've, I've just pop, popped it up on screen. So this is the completely reimagined work. Completely reimagined work. <laughs> So now, now that it's out in the world, do you have do you have any different perspective? Like, do you look back at those original? Like, were, were they really as bad as you say, or was it kind of like looking at a photo that was taken of you a year ago, and you're just like, I don't like that, but I also know that in ten years' time, that's going to be the me that I wish I looked like. <laughs> like that I mean I think they're atrocious but I also look at books that I published 10 years ago and I read sentences and I think oh oh, I'd never do that now I change this around and there's this saying that art is never finished it's just abandoned and I think (laughs) that's quite a good saying but in saying that looking at this one that's on the shelf Oh, there was something about having a complete second go. Mm. And actually, when I started, I didn't plan to re-illustrate the whole book. I said, look, let me kind of do maybe every third illustration. And then once I started doing it, it quickly became clear, look, there's no way that I can actually use these two two illustrations side by side. Um much to, I think, my pub. They were very calm about it, my publishers. They must have been, their blood pressure must have been absolutely through the roof when, when I told them, you know, a few weeks out from deadline, oh, I might start from scratch. Um, but, yeah, there was something about just I had already imagined this world mm. and so it wasn't really starting from scratch in terms of concepts. Yeah. It was just kind of, you know, thinking a little bit more about what I was doing and what do these creatures actually look like. And there were things like there's these troll characters that come out of the book. Mm. And then in the initial illustration, the trolls were larger than the kids, quite a bit larger. Yeah. And so 
Whereas in this version, they're like maybe just slightly larger, just things like that where I thought, oh, that's a bit scary. Like I just want to make them a bit smaller, which obviously is not a massive change, but somehow it meant that the kids could then drag these trolls down the street and shove them back in the books and do all of these things that were not quite working in the Mm. initial illustrations. I'm I'm reading along as you describe. I've got the book open. And I guess yeah. I guess you are right. There is a there is a fine line between a, a Smurf and a creature that like they would fight in the Lord of the Rings. And absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. And even in fact, it's funny. I did a I did a visit for Book Week um, at a primary school, and I was saying, you know, if you had one character that could walk out of a book and into this room. What, what book would that be? And what character would that be? And what kind of mischief and mayhem do you think this character would cause, you know, was sitting in a library? And one kid put up their hand and said, um, I would like Red Riding Hood to come out of a book. And I said, oh, that'd be great. You know, she'd have a basket of treats and we could all have a picnic with her. And then, of course, not really thinking deeply about it, I said, but what about the wolf? What if the wolf came in? And the kids suddenly started whimpering. <laughs> what have I done? And I quickly said, oh, no, 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 no. Bad characters can't come out of books. The bad characters are locked in. It's only the good. <laughs> so there is that very fine line between we want you to imagine these mythical and fantastical creatures being part of your life, but we don't want you to have nightmares. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I guess and is, is that's maybe a, a bit of a goal to have your have your character be dressed up at book week. I think I overheard some parents talking at work the other day. And I think, I think one of the things is basically, if you can make it as easy as possible, like if you can just basically be like, I need him to wear his everyday clothes. I need her to just be doing what she would normally be doing. And if I could just paint something on them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Purple face. And then, then, then they're the troll. That's fine. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. You've, you've mentioned a few of these, these um, the trolls, the cheeky characters, and of course, no spoilers. But the family and we know a place they discover some problems when some of the cheeky creatures they leap from the pages of one of their books. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you have a secret for bringing books to life? And please read that question however you like, whether it be within your books or in your own reading life. Yeah, I think um, within my books, like within we know a place, the illustrations are definitely telling a different story or adding more to the story than the text. And I think that's something that I've really become better at doing. You know, with some of my other books like Fashionista, which is a fashion anthem, the illustrations are giving you a little bit more. You know, there's a lot of kind of historical context and fashion characters like Prince or Beyonce or whatever that are hiding in the pages. But with this one, you know, things like there's a line, sneaky stories escape as, as uh, something like sneaky stories escape out the door. Mm. And that could mean anything, but then you have the door of the shop and you have, you know, creatures and it's a bit of a spoiler, but probably kids won't be listening to this anyway, right? <laughs> but, you know, you have Rapunzel coming out of the shop and you have Red Riding Hood and you have one of the three bears coming out of the shop. And so you're not talking about all of those stories in the text, but you're actually that's kind of the additional information that the picture is giving you. And, and, and that idea of evoking, well, what else has this child read? Mm. You know, when I kind of did, you know, do have read this book with kids, there's a dragon in one of the pages. And I kind of say, where's this dragon from? And some will say it's from how to train your, tame your dragon, or it's from, 
you know, whatever it is, Harry Potter or something, everyone has a different idea of what book this dragon is from. And then there's a little monster and some kids will say, oh, it's from where the wild things are. And some kids will say it's from Holly and Buster by Sally Rippon. And so this idea of I think I thought a lot more about how do I create creatures that are kind of ambiguous, that could be from here and could be from there and then kind of bringing it to life that way. And I think also in terms of some of the things, like there's a couple of pages where the parents are doing the chores, you know, mum and dad are mowing the lawn and and hanging out the clothes or the kids are helping mum and dad mow the lawn, hang out the clothes. And the parents are just sitting on the side, lounging on a couch, reading books. And actually what's happening is the kids are doing chores out the window. So that idea of, um, I think that's what for me makes picture books lives lively is that idea of the interplay between the text and the pictures. I, yeah. Oh, and I love that when you said sneaky stories escape without the picture, my brain immediately went to, I'm like, I, I want a story where you, you've already said any children listening, Maxine has already assured you the bad characters cannot escape, but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just between you and me, I'm like a story where the bad characters escape and then the good characters have to sort of sneak out and bring them back in. Yeah, yeah. I like, mean, maybe there's a second Duino place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like it's kind of a little bit in that Terry Pratchett vein of the stories yeah. coming to life. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is such a poetic book too. And Maxine, you're currently poet in residence at the University of Melbourne. It, it feels like countrywide poetry is enjoying a moment. Like, can you reflect on that that importance of poetry in our world at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think. It's always strange to me that poetry in the last, I feel like, 20 years has not had a faster re-emergence, mm. you know, given that we're interested in short form, mm. um, what everything is about, you know, these bite-sized morsels of text, whether it's on social media or whether it's things that people are writing, you know, li- literary texts that are written in short, short, episodic short form, Um and poetry does that so well, of course, because it's just this condensation of language. Um, I'm still waiting for the announcement of this poet laureate who we are supposedly going to have in Australia. I think it's been six months since, you know, Anthony Albanese announced that there would be a poet laureate. And we're all kind of just waiting, like, who are they? Where are they? <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, the poet in residence position is part of that, this idea that poetry just has a place in everyday life. Mm. you know, as well as in literature, that it should be something that is, yeah, just part of life. Yeah. Mm. Can I, can I, can I ask, I have, I have another question, but um, I, I, as you were talking there, I just, I've been trying to envisage like poet in residence is such a, an evocative term, but also I, I feel like I'm missing the point. Like I, people aren't just walking in. There's not just like a common room in <laughs> university of Melbourne. And it was like, who's that? And this is like, that's, that's Maxine. You're like, What's she doing? She, she she lives here. She's the poet in residence. It does sound like that. It sounds like I should be reclining reclining on a red velvet chase lounge, smoking a cigar and just waxing lyrical at anyone that passes by. Do, yeah, yeah. Like, do you do you do you have a teaching role? Is there just a is there a soapbox that you have to occupy at least once a week? <laughs> It's been varied uh, so far. So I've done things like they have this art student commencement day, which is just, you know, when everyone who's enrolled in the arts faculty comes and gets their student cards and gets a free meal, gets a Melbourne uni sweater or whatever. And I've kind of read some poetry at that event. 
Um, I do some guest lecturing. So within the creative arts and the arts faculties, if someone is teaching a particular course and they think, oh, I'd love to have a poet come in and talk about their work. So I do some of that. Um, Some things that have been a bit out of the ballpark, like there's a course called Narrative Medicine, which is kind of being trialled at the Mm. university. It's run by um, two doctors, I think, Fiona... I think maybe Fiona Murphy and a doctor named uh, Mariam Toki, who, yeah, the narrative medicine is this idea that if you teach doctors uh, storytelling skills and literary skills, mm. it actually makes them better doctors and better communicators and makes their brain think in different ways. So I had kind of two three-hour workshops with third-year medical student students where we did blackout poetry and we talked about language and we wrote various hospital narratives. And that was really intriguing to get to work with people who really have been wired to think not particularly like a writer. Um, So yeah, those are some of the interesting things. And then my latest project I'm helping, um, there's a, uh, a woman who is starting a little library in the engineering faculty so it's kind of a, a really cute curveball project that as an illustrator I'm designing and painting this little library and curating a poetry section and this idea of just putting poetry in front of engineering students. Okay, so many thoughts. I'm not going to – I promise I'm not stealing your entire morning here. First of all, <laughs> engineers should read poetry. I mean, there is a definite engineering element to poetry. What, mm. is, what is iambic pentameter except a work of engineering? Absolutely. Um. Nar- narrative medicine, like so. Again, I'm not going to take up your whole morning, but when I was finishing my speech pathology degree, my my thesis was on illness narratives. So we looked at, and I, I specifically looked at people with uh, multiple sclerosis. But my mm. supervisor was putting together this sort of series of investigations into what are called illness narratives and how they inform that kind of the the how they inform the progress of a disease for the person experiencing it and i'm just like oh that it kind of gives me chills thinking that okay someone's finally getting this to doctors good yeah yeah and it's something that's by no means a new concept you know as you say you've been working with it for a while but i think in australia and in that traditional medicine concept um mm. there's been a bit of resistance to you know, it's kind of like art therapy or, you know, something mm. like that where there's this this real scepticism around it. Um, but I found it fascinating to get to talk to these doctors. And, and the interesting thing was right at the end, and I got them, it wasn't just myself, so they had a succession of writers come in, including um, Tony Birch, who's currently the chair of Australian Literature at Melbourne Uni, and um, Melanie Cheng, who's a writer who's also a doctor. Yeah. So I got these students right at the end of this kind of intensive course which was lucky because they'd already had writing practice. And I kind of said, look, who here would love to continue writing after this, writing poetry after this? And everyone said yes. And I thought, you know, I think you might actually be doing yourself out of doctors rather than. (laughs) But, yeah, I think this idea that, yeah, that that the disciplines are separate and that poetry belongs to Mm you know, just the realm of literature and shouldn't bleed out into other areas is definitely, um, that that view is definitely fading. Yeah. Or well, even, even now working, I work a lot with um, uh, neurodivergent, neurodiverse people, um, autistic people, and 
this idea of at the moment where, especially when you're looking at any sort of lifelong uh, disability, moving away from the medical model, which where if we take a narrative perspective, in the medical model, the doctor is is a is a bit character that comes, um, you know, oftentimes towards the end. I feel like most doctors don't want to just be a walk on, <laughs> and and moving towards that kind of social model, like that's that's storytelling. Like to to actually conceptualize that that's storytelling. So again, so incredibly powerful. Mm, yeah. And I think, yeah, those are the things about the role that I've enjoyed. Mm. The things that have taken me a little bit outside of the arts, you know, to kind of say to other people, hey, like you might actually like poetry as well, you know. Mm. <laughs> and of course, on top of all of this, you you also have a new poetry collection out. It's been out a couple of months. Uh, it's The Sound of the Thing. It's a collection of 100 poems for young people. Can you tell us a little bit about this collection as well? As I said at the beginning, very prolific. Yes, so this collection, um, look, the idea behind this collection really was thinking a lot about, you know, going into high schools and kids who haven't read poetry for years who suddenly end up in year 10 reading Sylvia Plath thinking, what on earth is this? And thinking, what is there in contemporary Australian poetry to bridge that gap? And there are some phenomenal, particularly verse novelists, people like Sally, Sally Morgan's book, Sister Heart, or uh, Curly Saunders' book, Bindi, which which are kind of Mm. uh, First Nations verse novels. But that idea of single poet, single poems, a collection of single poems that are for kids' age, and it's quite ambitious with the age group. It's kind of kids age seven to fourteen, so it's a real kind of um, chocolate box. I hate to use a Forrest Gump invocation, but mm. of poems where you know some of the poems about things like getting bullied on the school bus, but some of them are about, you know, loving peanut butter or wanting to throw a party and your mum won't let you or going to the roller skating ring and your dad embarrasses you by doing, the, you know, going under the limbo. And so just, just that idea of bringing the fun back to poetry for that middle range of kids. Cause I, I used to love nursery rhymes Mm. Like that sing-song recitation of, you know, Humpty Dumpty. And and I just tried to think of, well, what came after that for me as a kid? And there really wasn't, I think it was maybe like Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes and Dirty Beasts, you know, those two mm. Roald Dahls. <laughs> and there wasn't much else that I read in between kind of grade two and grade seven. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the idea was to create a body of work and also kind of include lots of different forms, limerick, haiku, sonnets, a lot of free verse to just kind of show the variety of what's possible. Ah, oh, that is so fantastic. And Maxine, thank you. You've been so generous with your time. We're gonna, I'm going to mention them both. We have been discussing We Know A Place. It is Maxine's new, uh, well, we're going to call it a children's picture book, but I'm going to say everyone needs to read it because it is gorgeous. And also it's The Sound of the Thing is a new collection of 100 poems for young people from Maxine Bernabe-Clark. Maxine, it is always a pleasure. Write more books and I, I will talk to you every week. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Andrew. It's always lovely to talk to you. That is it. That is the end of today's show. Thank you again to Maxine Beneva Clark. Maxine's new book is called We Know a Place. It is an incredible ode to bookshops, an incredible ode to those magical places where we discover our stories. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunagara people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel.
stay in touch. You can reach out to Final Draft. We, you know, still kind of get around the socials as much as anyone's getting around on the socials. You could also, you know what? You can just go to 2SER.com forward slash Final Draft. You can email us. Final draft at 2SER.com. Email. I feel like we're going to be getting back to email the way social media is these days. Anyway, also subscribe in your podcast app. It's a way to get a new conversation from Final Draft every week. My name's Andrew Popel. I am going to be back next week with more incredible conversations from Australian authors here on Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye for now.